people have always said to me, I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, which I could accept. And I could never really explain it. It's just, it was always, wait till you see, and then you'll see. In the early 1970s, computers were only used by well-funded scientists or the wealthy. Lee Felsenstein was neither. Lee is a computer engineer, writer, activist, and co-creator of the first public computerized bulletin board system called Community Memory. It predates the World Wide Web by nearly two decades, and it was a computer in a time when most people had never encountered one, and yet might exemplify just the type of digital space we still have too little of. Welcome to Look Both Ways, a podcast about what the often overlooked experiments of the past can teach us about the problems of the present. In this week's episode, we talk with Lee Felsenstein about the Community Memory Project, the vision behind it, and what it means today. We'll then hear from Josh Kramer of New Public about what parks and other public spaces can teach us about shaping a healthier, more accessible, and decentralized internet. We also talk with the founder of one of the most popular decentralized social media alternatives today. Mastodon founder and developer Eugene Rochko joins us for a fun conversation. I'm Scott Herms, a developer by trade, actor by other trade, and podcast host, clearly, by clerical error. The show is made possible by my employer, Ken Carta, a digital transformation consultancy who exists to build a world that works better for everyone. As a quick, shameless plug, we're hiring for hundreds of positions right now in Chicago, London, New York, Buenos Aires, Colombia, and Denver, plus tons of remote opportunities. And by remote, we mean physically and not emotionally. So if you're an engineer, developer, designer, strategist, or researcher looking for your next step, you can learn more and see open roles at kinandcarta.com forward slash careers. The original community memory machine sat just inside the entrance of Leopold's Records in Berkeley, California, next to a physical bulletin board for musicians looking for gigs or potential bandmates. In 1973, the word digital didn't mean much besides, perhaps, pertaining to your fingers and toes. So when Lee Felsenstein was tasked with explaining community memory, that very bulletin board became the best available frame of reference. The idea was simple enough. Written messages could be recorded and entered into the machine, where they could be stored, categorized, and made discoverable by anyone through simple text searches. People would post information about events, attempts to organize, job opportunities, and other classified ads. Here's Lee. One of the questions we entered as seeds was, where can you find good bagels in the Bay Area? Now, in 1973, there were very few sources of bagels that were of any quality at all let alone good. Uh, And we got three responses. Two were what you might have expected. You know, the names of places where you could get bagels. All right. But the third one was the winner. That said, if you call the following phone number and ask for the following person, an ex-bagel maker will teach you how to make bagels. This is Ivan Illich's concept of the learning exchange, which occurred spontaneously. In his book, De-Schooling Society, Ivan Illich uses the idea of a learning exchange to argue that people learn most effectively 
when they're able to seek the information they desire. Lee and the Community Memory team believe technology could help people find the information they're interested in, connect with new people, and in turn, strengthen the Berkeley community. Here's a passage from one of the group's early brochures. Strong, free, non-hierarchical channels of communication, whether by computer and modem, pen and ink, telephone, or face-to-face, are the front line of reclaiming and revitalizing our communities. In a previous interview, Lee once described community memory as sort of a noisy, sluggish Craigslist. While some have called community memory the first form of digital social media, the important difference is where information went after it was entered, or rather, where it didn't go. Everything entered by the community was accessible by the community. Algorithms weren't scouring vast data sets to predict what other breakfast-related content might keep you from remembering that you live in the physical world. Connecting people was about connecting people. Lee says the story about the bagel maker is often met with the same question. People ask, well, what happened as a result? We don't know what happened. We didn't follow through. We weren't doing a, uh, a marketing study or a sociological survey or anything. We were just making this tool available and seeing what happened. What happened was often surprising. We saw some people who we thought were on another plane of existence uh, do some very competent searches there. And we thought that there would be three categories, jobs, cars, and housing. Now, we found things like somebody entered a typewriter graphic of a sailboat. Now, this is on a printing teletype, printing at 10 characters per second, chunk, 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 like that. Somebody actually entered on a keyboard, the characters for this uh, illustration. We found a poet who would uh, enter some uh, sample verses and at the bottom would be text, you know, for more poetry, call the following number and ask for John. For Lee, a particularly satisfying form of validation came through a chance encounter with Ivan Illich himself, the philosopher whose thinking about learning exchanges was so influential early on. And I was able to talk to Illich about it when he came through town. He said, uh, why do you do what you do, Lee? Why, why do you put a computer between people? You know, if I wanted to talk to Pearl over there at this party, I would just go over and talk to her. Why do you go D-D-D-D-D on keyboards and so forth? And I let him talk. And then I said, what if I didn't know that it was Pearl that I wanted to talk to? And he stopped. He said, I think I see what you mean. We first learned about community memory in the book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by artist and writer, Jenny O'Dell. She argues that community memory can help us understand how social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter contribute to what social scientists call context collapse. As Jenny is quick to point out, the idea of context collapse was first coined by media scholar Dana Boyd. And she also credits Joshua Meyerwitz's book, No sense of place for bringing the idea to light. Here's Jenny from a talk at Google for her book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Imagine if you went on vacation and you you came back and you you obviously would have a different version of your story for your friends, your family, and your employer. Um, And then imagine if someone threw you a surprise party and all of those people are in the room. What's the version of the story you tell them? It's either going to be really boring and banal and uninteresting to everyone, or you're going to offend someone. The way we consume information via social media is also all too easily void of context. 
because providing context isn't what platforms like Facebook and Twitter are designed to do. At the heart of any of the major social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, and Instagram, is the same underlying burning desire. I want you to Best way to make sure your eyeballs stay put? Why, something new, of course. Which means the idea of ingesting information with any sort of context becomes even more laughable. All it takes is a five-second scroll through your feed to feel it in action. A debate about vaccines. Photos of your cousin's baby, an ad for Kit Kat, and a reminder that you went on a roller coaster seven years ago are all served up all at once, like a bad leftover stew that leaves you feeling mostly tired, bloated, and confused. As Jenny writes in How to Do Nothing, she imagines different parts of her brain lighting up in a pattern that doesn't make sense, foreclosing any possible understanding. She says community memory offers an example of technology designed to connect people while maintaining some sense of context, in this case, a geographical location. Even when community memory installed new kiosks in new locations in the Bay Area, the content of the community memory terminal was unique to that location. Every message it held was entered by someone standing in the same place, on the same street, in the same neighborhood, in the same student-run record store. The context of community memory is not only its time and place, but its original purpose. We asked Lee to tell us more about the inspiration for the project. Well, that goes back a little further than you might expect. Student rallies at the University of California at Berkeley over the past two months have become commonplace. 1964, uh, I was a participant in the free speech movement at the University of California at Berkeley, and that was a little revolution in its own right. It overthrew the existing order of in loco parentis, in which the university administration got to control the the students' uh, bodies' lives. It went over a period of two months, and it was victorious, although we had a sit-in with something like 763 arrests. I was one of them. But the university, after the faculty voted to support our position of basically no administrative restrictions on the content of speech on campus, they, the, you know, the administration backed off and essentially adopted that policy. Nowadays, they celebrate it. Activist Mario Savio was one of the prominent leaders of the movement. Here he is from the steps of Sproul Hall at Berkeley. I'm confident that the students and the faculty, University of California, will exercise their freedom with the same responsibility they've shown in winning their freedom. And the important thing about revolutions is they do overthrow existing Orders uh, and they are mass events, which is this, was true in this case. But the third characteristic is that they have unexpected consequences far beyond that which is originally uh, envisioned. And that certainly happened here. It was basically the beginning of the counterculture, certainly in the Bay Area. 
the free speech movement was built as a kind of a communication organization, uh, not using the mass media, but it developed its own lines of communication on campus, which, which really reached out to a lot of people. This was really a feeling of, of uh, liberation, I would say. Some students started a controversial magazine. Everybody was writing their own leaflets and handing them out. So I came out of that saying, I want life to be like this all the time. And what can I do with the technology that I'm learning to make that possible? And I was looking for media that was not broadcast media. Now, the, I have to explain broadcast does not here imply you know, transmission over the air, but rather emission of the same information from a centralized point. free speech movement introduced what were seen as radical ideas into the mainstream. But the means of communicating those ideas were still limited to word of mouth, print media, radio, and television. But what was next? That was the big question. After dropping out of Berkeley in 1967 to work as an engineer, Lee re-enrolled in 1971, seeking people who shared his curiosity about how to answer it. He went to work as a junior engineer and... Uh, was sent to learn computer programming, at least the basic language, which is a pretty simple language, and learned about computer networks, learned about file systems and classification. And I realized that a network of computers could be a, a decentralized and non-broadcast medium, which could be available widely. Now, this is 1970 when I had that realization. And I remember sitting up and saying, but where am I going to get a computer? Now, within a year, I had found the answer to that. A group of people had in 1970 left the University of California and set up to bring computer power to the counterculture. The group Lee is talking about was called Resource One, a collective sometimes described as a technological commune that convened in the warehouse of an abandoned candy factory. Mmm, sweet, sweet candy. It was home to students, technologists, artists, filmmakers, anyone looking to experiment, build things, and learn from one another. They didn't know quite how, but they were able to perform an impressive hustling effort, and they actually got on long-term loan, which really means don't bother sending it back, <laughs> the same mainframe computer that had been used by Doug Engelbar for his mother of all demos in 1968. And that's that, that was one that... Uh, revolutionized computing and, and uh, created the concept of per the personal computer. At Resource One, Lee joined forces with Ephraim Lipkin, Ken Kolstad, Jude Milhan, and Mark Spakowski to form the Community Memory Project. Lee recalls an important early source of inspiration. The original concept I had for community memory was taken from a paper that was produced around in 1969 by a group of architects who called themselves People's Architects and his plan for Berkeley. And they envisioned a series of a network, in effect, of what they called life houses. And these were houses of people who were sort of naturals with community organizing who would make a front room available during some hours as a community information center. They didn't talk about computers, but I did. So the idea all along was to 
create and enable a network of communication at the neighborhood level, person to person. Their philosophy was clear, but knowing exactly how they bring it all together was less so. But for Lee and the community memory team, that was part of the fun. The need for experimentation meant the need for play, something Lee has always taken quite seriously. It took me a while in my career until I finally realized that I was a jock in the sphere of engineering. I had always, you know, grown up thinking that, uh, you know, the jocks were all just about the, the body, you know, and it's you know, superficial and it's, you know, so it's something they talk about endlessly. But as I went forward and, and, involved, and got involved in the personal computer and uh, industry's formation, I saw firsthand people putting resources in so that they could play with the equipment, in effect. Now, play means use without really having a preordained outcome in mind. So I began. I finally realized that, yes, I, I take visceral pride and, and joy when I can really let my mind work on a, on a problem and create something that's never been created before. It doesn't happen all the time, but you, you always try to keep getting there. And people did that in the Homebrew Computer Club. The Homebrew Computer Club holds a special place in Silicon Valley lore. It started as a hobbyist group, but if you were interested in how computers could change the world, it was the place to be. Lee was one of its original members. The Homebrew Computer Club boasts an impressive list of former members and contributors, most notably Apple founders Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. The Homebrew Computer Club is actually where the Apple One was first debuted in 1976. Steve Wozniak was Apple's leading engineering mind and a personal computing legend in his own right. To Lee, Steve Wozniak was a friend and peer. Wozniak even played a role in advancing the reach of community memory. It wasn't until 1984, uh, with assistance from Steve Wozniak, contributed to us, that we were able to open the second system. And this was located in most of the co-op markets Several community memory terminals would come and go over the years across the Bay Area. The last was shut down in 1992. Today, nearly 50 years after community memory made its debut at Leopold's Records, Lee is very much still at it, building, experimenting, playing, and writing about his every adventure. And there are many. Beyond community memory and the Homebrew Computer Club, Lee is recognized as a true pioneer in personal computing, He's often best known as the designer of the first-ever mass-produced portable computer called the Osborne One. Now, I never used the Osborne One, but we did have a Deck Rainbow 100 at my first job. It ran both CPM, the operating system that was on the Osborne, as well as a version of DOS. What made it really popular at work was the fact that it had dual floppy drives. Nerd fun fact, on the Rainbow, you put in the lower floppy upside down. You can read more about what Lee is up to at LeeFelsenstein.com. That's L-E-E-F-E-L-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N.com. You can even check out his Patreon at Patreon.com forward slash L-Felsenstein. 
L-F-E-L-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. Huge thank you to Lee Felsenstein for talking with us. We'll include links to everything on our site. But I like to say that the project itself opened the door to cyberspace and proved that it was hospitable territory. The concept of community memory, I think, is still quite valid. In Act Two of our episode, what is the decentralized web? Lee Felsenstein was talking about it back in the early 1970s. And I thought that was really what I should be aiming for, which was decentralized media. So what does it mean in the 2020s and beyond? Social media has so dramatically transformed our world that it's easy to forget where it began. Here's how we talked about Twitter and Facebook in 2005. Consider the site the 21st century version of the old paper-bound yearbook. Now, millions of students use the Facebook.com to list not only their pictures and hobbies, but as a virtual community. Forget blogging and MySpace. If you really want to stay connected, there is a new service, and supposedly it is the next big thing. It's a name you can't forget. It's called Twitter. (laughs) Fast forward 15 years or so. A Facebook whistleblower has told U.S. lawmakers that she believes Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken democracy. 5% of teenagers are addicted to Instagram. You're predicting people's behavior and manipulating? You're taking away their self-determination. Researchers found radical Islamic sympathizers were routinely introduced to one another through the popular suggested friends feature on Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg made his long-awaited appearance before Congress and apologized for his company's mistakes. Oops. The social media revolution has left a lot in its wake. Mark Zuckerberg used to pitch Facebook as a matchmaking service for romantically challenged college students. Today, he's either trying to convince the world he didn't accidentally destroy democracy, again, oops, or responding to serious ethical questions about addiction, hate speech, and crumbling public discourse. With this warm invitation. The metaverse gives us an opportunity to change that. But it's going to take all of us. How do we build out a larger system where people can communicate and serve the different aspects of their lives, where they can live and work and play and don't have to worry about like running into Nazis all the time, right? Wouldn't that be something? That's Josh Kramer. Josh is a writer, illustrator, and currently serves as newsletter editor at an organization called New Public. Zuckerberg is asking if we're ready to strap into the metaverse. People like Josh and the team behind New Public are asking more mm, relatable questions. Hey, do you like cities? What if the internet was more like a city? And sometimes it's as simple as like, hey, wouldn't it be great if you didn't hate all your social media platforms? So that's what, <laughs> that's our other pitch. New Public was founded by author and professor Talia Stroud and Eli Pariser. Pariser was also the co-founder of media outlet Upworthy, served as executive director of MoveOn.org, and wrote the 2011 New York Times best-selling book The Filter Bubble, one of the earliest warning shots about the dangers of social media and information silos. Josh says he thinks that conversations about how to fix social media giants like Facebook and Twitter 
are absolutely worthwhile. But if we're only focused on what they should do with their power, we may miss the bigger picture. People get hung up on solutions for the problems with big platforms that are all about, um, you know, how do we tweak the code to make it so that Facebook is better or whatever, right? And yes, we should try to do that, definitely. And we should do everything that we can. But we kind of are ignoring the larger human story here, which is, and it's not just about moderators and empowering humans to kind of pick which posts you see. It's about having a more fine-grained response and interaction, right? There is a kind of a broad menu of socialization that we've just kind of thrown away (laughs) or haven't thrown away, but we haven't really figured out how to do it yet on the internet. And that's really exciting. New Public offers a refreshing point of view. Yes, we need to make our digital spaces better, but we also need new digital spaces. Josh says he believes we're not doomed. We're just confused, angsty, and changing. In other words, we're in the awkward preteen years of social media, and we're really excited about what might come next, basically. So, you know, we take an urbanism example for a lot of our work. If you look at the way that cities evolved over time, they were dangerous, crowded, diseased places (laughs) for a lot of their history. And uh, that's not wiped out, you know, completely now in the 21st century. But there is a way for a lot of people to live on top of each other and not just be kind of shouting into the void. And that's what we're interested in, right? We want to cultivate a crop of digital urban planners who care about building new places for us online. Earlier, we talked about context collapse and the idea that social media platforms can erode the barriers of context that help us understand and relate to the world around us. Hey, Josh, do you want to talk about context collapse? Yeah, I want to talk about context collapse. You know, we actually do have pretty good models for for how to contextualize social interactions. And um, a park is an example that we use a lot, right? We're talking about like a city park, a public park. There are different spaces in a park that are suitable for different kinds of activities, right? There is a picnic table, maybe. There is a lakeside trail. There is a dog park, maybe. And it is widely understood by everyone in the park what is appropriate (laughs) for doing in the different parts of the park. And if someone is acting inappropriately, you have more subtle options than just essentially blocking that person and removing them from the park. You have a way to maybe like turn your back on the person or like give them a look like, hey, what are you doing? So the argument is public spaces are critical to the fabric of a community. Their purpose is clear, their expectations are clear, and the responsibility to meet those expectations is shared among the people who use them. We can assemble in parks, we can can play in parks, we can take a nap under a tree, ride a bike, or play a game all in the same park. And when we want to leave, we leave. We don't get a push notification 10 minutes later letting you know that Cynthia, who you may know, is currently at the park having way more fun than you did. The park's existence doesn't depend on us constantly being there, which sounds 
sort of obvious, because things like parks and libraries are widely accepted as valuable public institutions. But that wasn't always true. It's really humbling to think that some of the best public institutions that we have in the real world, they all had to be invented, right? Like high school had to be invented, public parks and libraries and museums, like someone had to say, what if we did it like this? Today, New Public is posing that very same question. What if we did it like this? What if public digital spaces existed alongside privately owned for-profit digital spaces? Libraries and bookstores coexist, your neighborhood park doesn't have to outperform six flags and quarterly earnings to be deemed a good idea, right? Or launch a massive ad campaign with some weird old guy dancing to lure you in, right? Why can't digital spaces work the same way? With broadcast media, there was a private electronic device invented by private corporations. And then over time, people said, no, actually, like the public, we own the broadcast spectrum, right? This is a public good. And if you want, you can operate private businesses on it. But ultimately, some of those resources are going to have to come back and build some public infrastructure, which is how we get PBS, NPR, things like that. So we asked Josh, what does this look like in practice? A great example of that is the Front Porch Forum. They're in Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts and a little bit of New York State. And they are a very simple, thoughtful platform where you can only post once a day. And in order to post, you have to like submit your comment and it goes through human moderation and curation. And if it's not harassment or, you know, inflammatory, it gets distributed via email to your community. Some people will say like, what's the point of this? If you can only talk once a day, why would anyone use this when there are really like fast, synchronous, addictive options out there. And the answer is because if you live in one of these communities, it ends up being a platform that you can trust. Sound familiar? Interactions on the Vermont Front Porch Forum are a lot more like community memory than Facebook and Twitter. Why? Because the context of those interactions is clear and contained. Anything being submitted there isn't written for everyone that person knows. Messages aren't aimed at gaming the algorithm and going viral because, in addition to being part of the same physical community, the shared characteristic of people there is the fact that their attention is not being sold. You understand that these are people in your community talking about things that they care about, and so if you want to like sell a tractor or plan an event, this is a great way to do it. And, you know, there's a serious caveat, which is that these are like small communities and they're all pretty rural and they're all pretty homogenous, but there is something here, you know? And, and there are like, the, there are platforms like this that currently exist, they have the kernels that we're really excited about that we think could end up fueling the next generation of big platforms. You may be thinking, what about Nextdoor? Aren't they a local neighborhood-driven social network? If you're not familiar, Nextdoor is kind of like Facebook for your neighborhood. People can exchange recommendations, support local businesses, borrow tools, and sell old couches. And how to do nothing, Jenny O'Dell argues that yes, 
The interactions on Nextdoor are rooted in geographic location, but otherwise the business model is the same as that of Facebook or Twitter. Service is free to use, but is still driven by targeted advertising based on what Nextdoor can learn about you. Odell writes about Nextdoor. It's not just technology that's being harnessed to facilitate local interactions, but local interactions that are being harnessed to produce revenue. Which doesn't mean for-profit digital spaces are inherently bad by any means. The argument is that when they are the only type of digital spaces available to us, the balance of power becomes astonishingly lopsided. Millions of people use these platforms, but the information and the lion's share of economic benefits sit with a few companies from Silicon Valley. As a complete and utter tangent, did you know that the phrase lion's share comes from Aesop's fables? I did not know that until today. Evidently, a lion, a wolf, a jackal, and a fox all go hunting together, as I guess they were wont to do back in the day, and they kill a deer. The lion splits it up into four equal shares, but then eats three of the shares because he's a lion. The moral of the story? Make sure you have a legally enforceable contract reviewed by your attorney before you pool your resources on a business venture. But I digress. People like Jenny O'Dell, Josh Kramer, and the folks at New Public are saying we also need spaces where the primary purpose of human interaction is the interaction itself. Part of the promise of Web3 and the decentralized internet is that we can restore that balance. What is Web3, you ask? Here's the ultra-brief version with zero crypto rant, sermons on Satoshi Nakamoto, or uses of the word paradigm. In Web1, people were consumers. The internet was like reading a magazine or watching TV. The TV wasn't watching us back. Winners of Web1 are companies like Netscape, Yahoo, and Tumblr. In Web 2, people became the product. Now the TV is watching you back, learning things about you, and selling what it learns to advertisers. Businesses became the consumers, and the control and economic benefits became centralized with a handful of tech companies who own the system that make it all possible. The Web 2 winner circle includes Amazon, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Google. In the movie business, we call this present day In Web3, the general public become the owners, because rather than relying on the computing power of the tech giant's server rooms, the internet can be built on vast user-owned networks of computers. Yes, this often is what requires blockchain technology and token systems, though not always. Again, we'll include links to some great resources to learn more about all of this. But for our purposes, the core idea is that ownership and power is shifted from tech companies to people. And when people become owners, they become stewards. Because when they're not trying to be everything to everyone, communities have rules, values, and purpose. And it is up to a few people who care very deeply about that community to keep it working. If the story of community memory isn't enough of a reminder, it's worth pointing out again that none of this is a new idea. One of the most popular decentralized social media alternatives is called Mastodon. It was founded by German developer Eugen Rochko in 2016. Eugen was kind enough to talk to us about how Mastodon works, the importance of decentralization, and what it will take to restore balance 
to how digital spaces are controlled and shaped. Here's my conversation with Eugene. We are joined today by Eugene Rochko, who is the founder of Mastodon. Welcome, Eugene. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, it's really exciting to have you on the show and really excited to start talking to you about Mastodon. So help our listeners understand exactly what is Mastodon. Mastodon is a uh, social network that works slightly differently than the ones that you might be used to. It, um, in, in almost all practical aspects, it works like Twitter. It allows you to publish short messages and attach pictures and videos, audio files and polls to them. It allows you follow. Uh, it allows you to follow other people on the platform and receive their posts in reverse chronological order on your home feed. The main difference to Twitter, however, is the fact that Mastodon is decentralized and open source. And what this means is that there isn't a Mastodon.com, one website controlled by Mastodon Inc. It, rather, it is a software that anyone can install on their own hardware under their own domain name and run completely independently uh, as their own personal social network. But they, all of these individual social networks work together in tandem to allow the people who sign up on them to follow each other and exchange messages uh, as if they were on a single website like Twitter. And so I guess from a user standpoint, is it fairly similar or what as a user might I know of, let's say whether I stood up my own instance or whether you know someone invited me to go check out their own instance of Mastodon, how, how might it look different to me or is it pretty much, it's a very similar experience overall? Uh, similar, you mean between Mastodon and Twitter or similar between being a user or a system administrator? Uh, I guess I'm sorry, just from the user who is just a like a Twitter user. Yes, like f- different from using Twitter. How would how would Mastodon look to me? Would it be quickly? Uh, would it be easy for me to understand how to use it? I mean, if you asked me a few years back, it would I would have said it looked pretty different. But over time, according to feedback from the community, the interface started looking more and more like web Twitter looks today. So it would actually look pretty familiar. There is a home feed in the center of the screen. There is a box where you write uh, your post uh, where you can attach files or uh, polls or add the content warning, which is a feature that doesn't exist on Twitter. Hashtags and mentions all work almost the same way. Um, I say almost because Twitter did change how mentions uh, look in the interface, but that's beside the point. You publish the message, you open somebody's profile and click follow. It's very similar. And so what inspired you to create Mastodon? Well, it was back when I was at uni and um, at the time, it was 2016, a while back at this point, uh, Twitter was uh, kind of being run into the ground by the management. There were some unpopular decisions being made on the API side uh, in terms of creating bad blood with the, uh, with the third-party developers, sort of centralizing, so to speak, the, the, the power in the official Twitter app. There were talks about Twitter being uh, purchased by some unsavory um, companies or, or people. And the, the question arose, well, why, why is something so important, something that allows me to communicate with 
my friends or with the world or allows people in the world to communicate with each other owned and controlled by a single company that is so susceptible to um, to either making bad uh, administrative decisions or you know running out of money and shutting down or being bought by someone who's going to to ruin it in, in one way or another so having some background and looking into decentralized social networks before I had some friends, programmer friends uh, growing up that were into that. That is not an, a novel idea. It's been around for a while. I have uh, decided to uh, try uh, making my own. And I wanted to make it different to, to other open source projects in the sense that oftentimes they don't put a lot of thought into user experience or design. And I wanted to make it actually appealing to a, a mainstream audience. And as it turned out in uh, November 2016 and later also in April 2017, that uh, it did actually work out that way and it, it had mainstream appeal. Do you know how many instances there are out there of Mastodon? I know there is uh, around 3,000 Mastodon servers in the wild. And uh, it needs to be said, though, that Mastodon is not just Mastodon. We, the way that this whole decentralized thing works is there actually is a language or a protocol that has been developed by um, a respected um, standardization body, the W3C, called ActivityPub, that defines a, a specific, um, well, as I said, language for how this sort of social information can be exchanged between servers and um, actors on those servers. And so any project that wishes to participate in the network of these servers simply needs to implement this activity protocol. And so there are a whole bunch of projects that are part of what we call the Fediverse, which is a portmanteau of a feder federated universe. Projects include uh, PixelFed, which is sort of um, approaching the decentralized social network aspect from uh, more of an Instagram-like perspective, a photo-centric. There is PeerTube, which uh, seeks to um, do the same thing for videos, kind of like YouTube. And um, Pleroma, which uh, is similar to Mastodon, but different. And so when I say there are 3,000 Mastodon servers, that is just a part of the Fediverse. There are even more servers that aren't Mastodon. And so maybe it'd be useful to understand about the how the Federation works, because that certainly is a unique feature that we don't see from other sort of mainstream social media tools like Twitter or Facebook. How does Federation work? Well, first I want to point out that even though you might not be aware that you've already seen Federation in practice, most people have, and it is email. Email is a federated protocol yeah. uh, and most people have uh, have used it and uh, the defining feature of, of federation uh, as, as a decentralization strategy is that you have service providers like let's say Gmail or Fastmail or Hotmail or whatever uh, you sign up on them and you can send messages to any address from any other provider so even though you know my email might be on Gmail, I might send an email to someone so, who is on Hotmail. Okay. And so 
while those things are in social networks, uh, the, the, the principle that it works is, is similar with Mastodon. You sign up on one server. We, I mean, we used to call them instances, uh, but I've you know since renamed them to, to servers because I think it might be more understandable to a non-technical person. Mm-hmm. Instance is more of a... Yeah. It's halfway between a gaming term from like, you know, an instance of a dungeon in World of Warcraft and halfway to a programming term where you have a class and then you have an instance of a class. Yeah. But server, I feel like it's just, it's still a programming term, but it's so much more common. Mm. If we go a bit deeper for, uh, than just how it looks from the outside, it's not like some people have a misconception that, you know, every server exchanges all the data with each other. That is not how it works. In reality, a lot of data is basically always hidden uh, within a specific server and never leaves it. It's kind of like every server could be a standalone social network. If no other server existed, it would function just fine. Private information like email address, password, and so on never leaves it. Uh, What does leave it is information that is intended to leave it, like a message you sent to your friend on another server. That's very helpful. So... What Mastodon servers do you use, or how do you like to use Mastodon? Well, as the person who started the thing in 2016, I have my own Mastodon server, the the first Mastodon server, Mastodon.social. It came live in like March 2016, and it's been online since. So I would say, yes, that's my favorite one, just because it's mine. There are two ways that people approach that how people see Mastodon servers. One is to see it as a um, sort of as a service provider, which is what it is really. Kind of like, you know, if I sign up for Gmail or, or you know, another provider, I'm signing up not because of its amazing community or because it is aligned with my interests, it's because I want a reliable service for my email, right? So that is one way to see Mastodon servers. You want to sign up somewhere that is reliable and neutral and that just works. But because Mastodon allows communities to self-govern, it is a very popular choice for people to run very themed communities uh, because you can run them under your own domain name. So you could have a community for artists or a community for musicians or a community for a specific fandom. And, you know, you could have a theme, like domain name that is always part of your username. You could have your own, you know, community um, rules and whatever. And so some people see that as a sort of group chat. So people who use Mastodon that way tend to have more accounts on different servers. And then they could have, oh, I have these, you know, favorite servers because the communities are really cool. Whereas I personally would just say, okay, the server that I that my account is on is my favorite because that's the only one I use. I follow people from, you know, probably a hundred different Mastodon servers, but not because of the service. I'm just follow people and it doesn't matter what server they're from. Okay, that makes sense. One of the things that happened recently in the past year was that it looked like Donald Trump's new social, Truth Social was... Uh, improperly built using Mastodon code. Was that what happened um, where they did, you know, fork and use for private use or was there something else going on? I mean, yes, it's confirmed by now that they use Mastodon code. Okay. So yeah, that was an interesting bit of news. We 
heard that there was a new Trump social network and people started investigating and looking into it. And then they were surprised to find that a lot of the, you know, paths in the address bar looked like paths that Mastodon was using. And then somebody looked into the uh, HTML code and looked and, and found that, um, you know, Mastodon class names were still being used in the CSS. And of course, it looks extremely similar still, even though a lot of stuff was removed from the interface. Now, the thing about Mastodon is it's open source under a condition. The condition is the license. The license is AGPL version 3. The point of the license is that you are allowed to look at the source code, you're allowed to distribute it, to modify it, to do anything you want with it pretty much, under the one condition that you keep the license and that you publish any changes that you make and that the users of any network service that you run using this code also have access to the code. So that was one condition that the Trump social site did not meet because nowhere was there any reference to it being Mastodon or having any way to see into the source code. So uh, what we did was when we learned about this was uh, obviously I contacted my lawyer, we looked into it, we um, decided that the best course of action given these conditions was um, to write a notification letter to the Trump legal team uh, to tell them that what they're using has this license and that this license has this requirement and that they're not complying with the requirement. So that would count as the initial notification and uh, you know give us 30 days to work with in case they don't comply. I have checked a few days ago in the meantime uh, it looks like uh, the, their site does have a link to an open source section that links back to their source code. So I can't comment on, on, on whether everything is resolved or not because uh, I haven't heard back anything from legal yet but just with my own eyes I can see that at least something has changed. So you started Mastodon, you know, roughly five years ago, gosh. And I mean, how, how would you define success for Mastodon? Well, the definition probably changed for me over the time, but I think the ultimate and realistic definition of success for a social network is how widely it is used. Do you see this as a replacement for Twitter? Is that a vision of your success or is it, you know, just to sort of start competing in those numbers with that kind of network? I see it as a long-term replacement, yes. I think that the world would look better if uh, overnight you snapped your fingers like Thanos and <laughs> Twitter was replaced with Mastodon. It, would, it wouldn't solve all problems in the world, and I mean definitely it wouldn't solve all problems in the world, and it wouldn't even solve all problems with social media, but it would at least be marginally better for everyone involved, so yes. Now the interesting thing, I think, about what I mentioned before, the network effects, and um, is that with a decentralized network like Mastodon that's based on a uh, sort of standardized protocol like ActivityPub, is that it sort of unlocks your social graph. Social graph being, you know, the people that you know, the people that you're interested in, your friends, and so on. Because, okay, let's, let's take Twitter, right? If you, all your friends are on Twitter, and you want to switch away from Twitter, you're kind of stuck because you need all your friends to switch away as well and to the same place as well. Otherwise, you won't be able to maintain 
your social graph. But with Mastodon, okay, let's say you want to switch from one Mastodon server to another. Well, you don't need your friends to switch their Mastodon servers. You just, you know, follow them again because it just works. And if you want to stop using Mastodon because a new software has come along that's so much better, well, you can switch and your friends don't have to because the social graph is maintained in this decentralized network. You just follow their old accounts just as before because it works with the, with the protocol and not with, you know, it's not locked in to a specific platform. Does that make sense? It, it does, absolutely. And I think that's a, a great advantage of a decentralized system. Yeah, that's why I think that Mastodon is the sort of future-proof social platform compared to Twitter and so on. We haven't seen it as much recently, but over the last decade, we've seen a lot of social media platforms come and go. For example, Google+, it appeared and then it disappeared. And so it's not unreasonable to think that one day Twitter might stop existing and maybe even Facebook. That would be a, sure. that would be a blessing for all of us. But with something like Mastodon, First of all, because it's open source, if I get hit by a bus or I lose interest and stop developing it, the code is out there for someone else to take over and continue developing. And even if they don't continue developing it, they can still continue using it for decades to come. And what do you think is the biggest obstacle right now for people adopting this decentralized web or even just very specifically the Mastodon and ActivityPub? Is it, is it just sort of not understanding the benefits? What What's stopping people from making that transition? I think network effects are still the biggest, the biggest hurdle to overcome for any social media platform that you know wants to start. It's it's really great that the way that you know what I talked about with the social graph being unlocked. But right now, as of this point, the social graph for most people is still locked within these centralized platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and so getting people over is complicated. So that is probably the, 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 the main aspect of, of what makes it more difficult for uh, people to switch to Mastodon. The other thing being content discovery. Platforms like TikTok and Twitter in, invest a lot in discovery algorithms, in trying to get people to find engaging content. And sometimes this is not a very good thing. Sometimes it leads people into um, dark rabbit holes of, of finding inflammatory content, uh, which technically increases engagement, which which uh, looks good on somebody's term sheet, but is not so good for people. On the other hand, uh, I've heard a lot of good things about TikTok's discovery algorithm, where it sort of somehow manages to f match people with content that actually makes them you know feel good about themselves or whatever on mastodon in comparison we because we've taken a a less algorithmic stance to things we've sort of encouraged the uh, traditional reverse chronological home timeline as the main thing it can be harder to find new and interesting content to follow but that, that is an area of development that i've been actively working on for the past few months and uh, that's where I'm hoping to find more improvements uh, in the future. Just even even the fact, I, I think one of the other key things, and it sounds like, I don't know if you're planning on doing this just currently as a feature in Mastodon, is just giving people control over how they see their feed, right? So that's one of the things around 
certainly in Facebook, they, they used to give you that and now they've taken it away where you can't really... Oh, no, that's of course our central feature. Yeah. As, as I mentioned, reverse chronological timeline. Yeah. You follow someone, you see their posts. That's it. That is right. your control. If you don't want to see their posts, you unfollow or you mute. Uh, you can also mute specific words and you can mute someone without unfollowing them if for some reason you want to maintain the appearance of following them. So, I mean, yeah, you have the controls and you get to see everything that you opt into. One of the things that's interesting about Mastodon, it seems like over the years, the LGBTQ community have found a home there, often after experience harassment on Twitter. And you've also maintained a very clear no Nazi policy from the get-go. Can you, can you talk about the role inclusion has played in your vision for Mastodon? Well, the reason for this is that a platform like Twitter has a much harder time dealing with moderation. Um, they have millions of users and they have a team of, I don't know, well, let's say generously 40,000 moderators. That's still a very huge difference between the amount of moderators and the amount of you know content that they have to sift through. And so moderation on Twitter is often automated, often impersonal, there is no one to reach out to when somebody is harassing you or if hateful content is being posted. In comparison, when uh, you know somebody runs a Mastodon server, they are in charge of, of moderating it. And let's say you have 100 users using your Mastodon server, that is a ratio of 1 to 100, which is a lot better than millions to 40,000. You know, and so besides that, also, um, the, you know, the people using your server, they, they know you and they can message you. And there is more communication between the people doing the moderation and people, you know, living in these places. And so that is one part of, of why people from LGBT communities switch over from Twitter to Mastodon. And the other part is obviously that Additionally to this, because the, the servers can, they can decide what kind of rules they want to adopt, what goes against the rules and what doesn't, they can adapt more flexibly to the needs of the communities that, you know, that live there. You know, like, as you said, you started this, you know, journey five years ago, you know, looking back at your initial impulse to where Mastodon has come now, what, what has been one of the biggest surprises to you or, you know, how, how has it changed over what you originally thought? I think the biggest surprise was the initial success, if I'm being honest, because I was working on it from my um, bedroom in my parents' apartment uh, when I was at uni. And so my idea of success was, oh, I'll just get these people who are using it right now, who are mostly nerds, to switch over to what I made. And I had no idea that um, it would become popular in, in a way that you know, people who've never heard about the Fediverse, about decentralization, would actually switch over and start using it. And so that was definitely a big surprise. And that changed my goals. That changed how I thought about the project and made it, you know, made it my full-time employment, basically, from that point onwards. And then, of course, in April 2017, I mean, you couldn't not be surprised by, you know, big news publications like, you know, Vice, The Verge, Forbes, and so on, just, you know, writing about you all of a sudden. I have not seen that coming. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, if you think, if you, if you talk about surprises, I would say those were the two biggest ones. It's hard to compete with those. 
Perfect. Well, thanks, Eugene, for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation. It's been great to learn about Mastodon, the decentralized web, and we really enjoyed spending time with you today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. In 2017, author and game designer Ian Bogost summed up the state of social media by saying, Facebook and Twitter are only like water coolers if there were one giant global water cooler for all workplaces everywhere. Mastodon is one platform hoping to change that. Thank you again to Eugene Rochko for making time to talk with us. The decentralized web will come in many shapes and sizes, and most people will agree that we're too early in the process to truly know what the next phase of the internet will bring. But that vast amount of ambiguity is fertile ground for expert predictions, misunderstandings, and less than original headlines promising, the one thing everyone gets wrong about Web3. With that in mind, we'll leave you with some sage advice from Josh Kramer at New Public. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is something we say all the time that comes from the Nobel-winning economist, Dr. Eleanor Ostrom, who said, no panaceas. Even when something is promising, like this idea of private decentralized networks as the future, or in a way to like finance um, a business model of social networks that can be away from big tech, it's not going to be the perfect solution for every situation, right? You know, if you're in the woods and you need a pair of scissors, you might have a Swiss army knife that has a scissors on it, and you'll be really happy that you have that. But if you're at home and you need to do like a big collage project or something with a lot of cutting, you're never going to use that tiny pair of scissors on a Swiss Army knife. Like sometimes there are just things that are better suited to better situations or different situations. Huge thanks again to Josh Kramer for talking to us about New Public and the need for better public digital spaces. And again, thank you to Lee Felsenstein for taking us back to 1973 to learn about community memory. This episode was produced and written by Max Parcell. Editing by Chris Mitchell and Max Parcell. Sound design by Chris Mitchell. Original music composed by Ethan T. Parcell. Minor hints of jollity added by me, your host, Scott Herms. Please subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcast injection system you're listening to right now to never miss an episode. Leave a review or rating if you like this episode. Let us know what you think about the show on Instagram at LookBothWaysPodcast or on our website at LookBothWays.KinAndCarta.com. Or if you don't want to be part of the social media industrial complex, go to docs, that's D-O-C-S, dot joinmastodon.org for instructions on how to download and install Mastodon to create your own decentralized but federated microblogging site and tell us all about your ideas from there. See you next episode.